Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's news. I'm the editor, Peter White. We've got with us both, we've got a solar analyst, Andrew Wantanar. Hello there. Hydrogen and aviation analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. EV and oil analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And product manager, Simon Thompson. Good morning. Hello. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about how rapidly the US build-out of its battery raw materials is going, uh, noting that Traffic Euro this week is trying to get in on the action. Um, we're going to see that Singapore has finally realised that its future energy future lies with hydrogen. Um, at, at present, it imports almost all um, fossil fuels for electricity. And finally, in the US, Avangrid has said it might have to kill one of its largest offshore wind deals because its PPA prices were set before the energy crisis. Um, and we'll see what our product manager, Simon, made of this week's issue. But uh, first, Connor, uh, you're up. Um, what has Traffic Gear done? And, um, and how's it going to affect um, battery materials in the States? Traffic Gear has signed an MOU with Evolution Energy. And this is to build and supply a cobalt refinery in Arizona, I believe. That will be entirely solar-powered, according to Evolution. And this will potentially, at max capacity, supply 40% of U.S. cobalt demand based on 2027 EV figures, which is a lot of cobalt. That's 7,000 tons annually. I mean, I don't even know what the global um, cobalt uh, shipping is. It's, it's um, It can't be much more than double that, can it? I imagine it won't be that much more because most of the EVs in China are going to be working on LFP batteries, which have a far lower cobalt concentration than NMC. I mean, co- raw cobalt is like 100,000 tonnes a year from Congo, but this is like refined for battery use. So it's a rather... Sort of different thing, isn't it? This this must cost. This yeah. must be an investment of at least several billion, right? Or tens tens of billions. This must be gigantic. This one's is just an MOU at the moment, but it's going to be a significant investment, and the the operational expenses are going to be ludicrous just to be acquiring that much more cobalt to be refined and then to be to be output. Uh, have they given in the any indication of where the cobalt's going to come from? They haven't, no. <laughs> That's one of the things I was concerned about, and that obviously a vast, vast majority of it at the moment comes from the Congo, which is problematic. And, it, well, on the lower end of the problems with it coming from the cobalt is that it's not America, so it wouldn't be eligible for IRA subsidies. But Canada does have cobalt reserves, that have been largely unexplored because of the expense associated with it. So if I had to hazard a guess as to where the cobalt will be from, it'll be from Canada. Yeah, I'm looking at a 2021 um, uh, graph um, of um, cobalt reserves, and Canada is down uh, under 10% of what the Congo can do. But that's reserves. That's not necessarily saying... Um, you know, we explore and we find some more. Uh, Australia is the second largest, uh, about half of what Congo has. So um, I imagine Australia is your first port of call. Um, Indonesia uh, as well. Cuba, I'm not sure if that's on their list of friends. 
DOE's funding roughly 30% on average of kind of individual costs. So the total investment from this round is 9 billion USD for all of the projects within the grants of the okay. year. So, I mean, to me, it seems like America's trying to reinvent the wheel. I mean, we, we've had this going on for a while. We've had electric vehicles becoming more and more important. We've had Tesla. We've seen the share value of Tesla. We've seen uh, Europe say 2035, no more non-electric cars. China done the same. Um, and yet there's already supply chains building up around the world, mostly um, that are beyond the control of America. Um, is this not slowing down the whole process, this insistence that um, the jobs go to America? I mean, you know, yes, maybe it is. But, I mean, it, you must have a, a difficult decision to make. Do I carry on making cars for Europe using Chinese components? Do I um, rethink all of my um, supply chain globally? Or do I, do I start on this new supply chain, which initially will be more expensive, surely, and take longer to develop because you've got to kind of find an assay, the fines, and then set up processing plants? Um, it's like a second wave coming almost far too late. Will this save Detroit? Will this save the American car industry? I think it not having any kind of social and government backing would put Detroit and it would put the U.S. car industry in a worse position than it is now. I don't think them adding and contributing towards that is necessarily jeopardizing it in that sense. No, no you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, right. You're right. It's no good just giving in to China. You've got, to, you've got to fight your cause. But at the same time, had Donald Trump done this at the beginning of his term in office, now we're two years into Biden's term, seven years has been lost. I just wonder if this, if we can catch up. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I've never seen an administration go out there and build infrastructure, build supply chain for organisations and throw this kind of money at it. I mean, this is a, a desperate last-ditch attempt to not lose control of the entire global economy. Well, it's the US. I don't think they're overly short on money they can throw at things and support of their home industries. How are they paying for this? How, how are they paying for this? Largely going to be government debt, I believe. Exactly. And uh, the debts can be paid back sometime. Let's not worry about it. It's funny, when, when anyone else does that, their currency takes a, a complete knocking. The American economy's got, the American currency's got stronger of late. Reserve currency. That's nice. <laughs> our currency, and, and we'll see what happens to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we're, just a, a couple of those deals. 149 million to Abamal. Um, it's going to put in 225 million of its own to process lithium cathode materials. 57.7 million to American battery technology. Um, 50 million to Amprius, which, which it's going to add to a, a pile of 140 million to um, prove a new process for silicon nanowire anode technology. 117 million to Anovian to go with its 294 million to build a factory to make 35,000 tons of synthetic graphite anodes. Uh, there's a whole list of deals on the website. If you go to our um, uh, if you go to our website rethinkresearch.biz, you click on energy. Uh, you click on the traffic area headline, and on the last thing is the link to the um, to the uh, DOE list of all the 20 deals um, if you're looking for a company to either invest in or steer clear of.
whichever um, your opinion takes you in. Um, so um, we'll look. At, I mean, we've, we're going to follow, be following this for the next three or four years. So um, and hopefully, um, Connor, you're going to have a report coming out probably end of this year, maybe early next, on the supply chain of, uh, of battery and how it's changing. Um, Singapore, Bogdan, um, what's it been up to with hydrogen? Yes, well, uh, Singapore um, committed to hydrogen recently. The um, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Lawrence Wong, um, came out and publicly stated that by 2050, um, he expects up to half the country's power demands to be um, satisfied by hydrogen. And the reason I found this interesting is because Singapore is such a small country, well, it's basically a city. Um, so it's always interesting to see how, how such uh, countries navigate the um, their energy needs and climate change as a whole. And so far, Singapore has been uh, relying on uh, imports of fossil fuels, so mostly natural gas and oil, 70% um, um, oil and 26.5% natural gas, to be precise, and only 0.1% uh, from solar. And no coal, no coal. One point something percent coal. Yeah. It's just its neighbour, Indonesia, is an exporter of coal, and so is yep. Australia, and you'd think they would have tried to. Uh, but maybe coal plants just took up a lot of um, space, and maybe they just came at the wrong point in history. Yes, and uh, they don't have a lot of space, um, so hence why uh, they can't really scale up renewables. Um, so this is where hydrogen subs in because you can just import it just like uh, a lot of countries import fossil fuels. I wonder if the Deputy Prime Minister has done the sums on how much it's going to cost to take somewhere like Australia uh, and to build out a region of solar, um, turn it into hydrogen, put it on a ship and move it to Singapore compared to putting the Sun Cable battery that's the, 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 uh, sorry, the um, wire, which they're planning to put under the sea, all the way to Singapore, um, and just deliver electricity as as is uh, into Singapore. Um, I think I know which money I put. I know which project I put my money into. Well, um, Lawrence Wong is also the Minister of Finance in Singapore, so I'm, I want to say he's probably done the maths. Uh, but obviously, don't quote me on that. I've never known a politician to do the maths themselves. That's a fair point. But yeah, they're looking to, to as a first step, um, set up a low-carbon ammonia uh, infrastructure for power generation. And they also have a few deals with some of the neighboring countries like Indonesia, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, to import um, a lot of renewables, which is how they uh, plan to get out of this uh, climate change energy crisis situation to rely on hydrogen and uh, renewable imports. And uh, they're not the only country doing so. Um, Oman in the Middle East, have also released uh, publicly a set of targets yeah. of um, hydrogen production through electrolyzer capacity powered by wind and solar. And uh, they have detailed targets of how much hydrogen they're going to make by 2030, by 2040, by 2050, and how much electrolyzer capacity um, that's going to be backed up by. And you see, the amount of protected sea around Singapore, where the waves don't get up to more than two or three metres, um, would lead you to suspect that floating solar could do all of this for a tenth of the price. And, and there are experiments there. There's even one live installation. 
Um, but it, it, sometimes you, you you take an installation like that and you go, well, how much more power will, will we need? Um, where could we get this from? Um, uh, what will this cost? Then ostensibly, uh, a huge push in floating solar could have um, Singapore um, just just almost self-powered with its own security, whereas hydrogen's got to come from somewhere else. That's correct. And I mean, I'm not a solar expert, but it seems to me like they wouldn't be able to satisfy the demand just with floating solar around Singapore. I don't know, Andres could probably come in and... Yeah, that would be my... Uh, they could probably go quite far, but, you know, they're also a port, so you might start getting in the way of ships. Uh, I, I don't think it's very good for... Um, I don't think it's very good natural resources down there because I think the cloud cover and humidity is fairly high, so... Uh, it would yes, certainly be useful, true. but I mean, I, I wouldn't want to just do. But they're importing renewable energy through Thailand and Malaysia. Yeah, um, yeah, I would um, want to. So, you, you look at how densely populated that bit of the, the world is. I think uh, transmission lines across state boundaries would be uh, very pay off quite easily. With you know hundreds of millions so, of people. So, so, Malaysia got a much lower density of population and much more available space and are much friendlier to renewables. So, so, yeah, why not? Why not? Just if you're going to be buying either the raw materials or the energy, um, you know, it's better to buy power directly from Malaysia through existing connections, um, just that Malaysia won't have enough. Oh, I mean, we, we have to mention the, the Australia solar cable thing again, don't we? Uh, I, think that, I think that has a lot of potential. <laughs> These sun cable. Yeah, what, do you remember how much power that sun cable was going to bring to bear? It's measured in tens of gigawatts, potentially. Really? Yeah, they keep. Well, I mean, these these projects, really... like the, the these these mega projects with the cables to Singapore or the hydrogen hubs in Australia, they they keep changing their minds about the gigawatts. So eventually, I stopped bothering to remember the latest scale. It was definitely ten gigawatts or so. Okay, solar generation of seventeen to twenty gigawatts. Battery storage of 36 to 42 gigawatts, mm. all running out of Darwin onto a cable that goes past Indonesia to Singapore. Yeah, I mean, if that project ever comes to to light, it will be so much cheaper than um, um, so 3.2 gigawatts of dispatchable electricity. That's that's the plan. So it'll be so much cheaper than uh, importing hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen's round trip economy. I mean, everyone points it out to us. They always say we're mad for supporting hydrogen because you know, do we not understand that if you take renewable energy and then, and then you uh, electrolyze water um, and, and then you burn the hydrogen, if that's what you do, or you run it through, um, through fuel cells to generate electricity, that the round-trip electricity can be as, uh, uh, efficiency can be as low as 12 or 15%. And even with improvements in efficiency of uh, electrolysis, that's not going to go up much above 20%. Now, I know we, the whole world's been running on coal at about 40% um, round-trip efficiency, but even so, you want to pick something less efficient in coal. Um, so we've, we've always pitched hydrogen to be used in fuel cells as much as possible with a, with a much higher round-trip efficiency um, initially to drive large transport um, and, then, and then eventually uh, other forms of transport and eventually air transport. So that's always been our pitch. And that, that drives down the cost of hydrogen so much that there's a global uh, marketplace for it that you end up 
saying, oh, it can now be used. It's so cheap, it can now be used for a lot of these other, other things like power generation. But here we have going straight to power generation. Just, it just doesn't quite feel right at this stage. Um, mind you, Fortescue in, in, uh, in uh, Australia is talking about hydrogen ships to Japan. Uh, they might as well stop off at Singapore on the way. And the other thing that Singapore is always popular, uh, always um, keen on, is acting as a, a local hub for that region. So it'll be the ports where all the hydrogen ships dock on the way to somewhere else. So they might as well take some hydrogen off at that point. Um, that's, that's always been their aim. They did, tried that with national, nat, natural gas. They wanted to have LNG, be an LNG uh, hub. Um, that hasn't really worked out. Okay, I mean, it, it, but it is true that uh, countries like Japan and, um, and South Korea, much larger countries than Singapore, um, who've got the same kind of problems of not enough renewable, um, renewables available, seem to be reaching for a combination of nuclear and, uh, and hydrogen uh, in the long term. So um, with, without doing enough to explore the renewable, renewables around where they are. I mean, for, for Japan and Korea, it would be floating wind. But, um, you know, we haven't seen enough progress in that area, or it's very slow. Um, let's move on to our third story. Um, again, so Avongrid, who wrote the Avongrid story? Uh, I did. Oh, it's, it's, it's a bug, bug there. So it's um, back to me. Yeah, you know, it's because you're covering offshore wind. How big is this offshore wind deal that they're thinking of cancelling? It's just 1.2, I think, yeah, 1.2 gigawatts of um, offshore wind. But it's supposed to power 750,000 homes in the Massachusetts area. Yeah. Uh, they claim it can displace 2.35 million tons of greenhouse gases so what, uh, what, per year. What, what implications has this got for all of the offshore wind development in America? I mean, are we looking at there's got to be a price adjustment for all of them because their costs have gone up and the power purchase agreements have all been uh, written in, not if not stone, you know, partially, partially hard substances for some time. Yeah, well, that's exactly the question that came to, to my mind because um, Avangrid have... Um, it has a um, a um, a deal in in California for a I think it was a four point five gigawatts um, offshore wind in California that they that they're involved with. They're one of the many companies that have a, a piece of that pie. Well, that's floating wind, and that's much much less developed than this. That's that's a couple sure. of years behind this. Yeah. So then, are you saying that that's gonna I think the, the PPAs gonna, won't, won't be, Yeah, I think the PPAs won't be sitting concrete for that. So right. we, we could be well past the energy transition by the time that's ready to, to sign contracts. But here they are. Um, but they obviously were very close to signing contracts. This is a bit like the rise in PPA prices in in Europe, uh, as well as the decline in PPA signings in Europe in the past year. <laughs> if you raise the price, you sign less. Yeah. Mm. Funny that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which we wrote, we covered last week. Um, I mean, th th this is a problem for the whole. You know, this energy crisis is a problem for everyone. If you uh, previously had a price that you could um, settle and agree upon, uh, where everybody made a bit of money, everyone got enough energy, 
Um, if suddenly you're, even if you're a, you're a, you're a solar company, and if suddenly you're making a fortune on your existing solar because it's going into the grid at natural gas prices, you're going, hang a minute, a minute, let's not commit to any deals at a much lower price than that. And you, you get your greedy hat on and you start to think about maybe we can, you know, eat this out for a couple of years. Maybe we should sign at a much higher price. And, and that's probably why PPA, but at the same time, your costs are going up. So you go, oh, no, I need a bit more, at least a bit more. And then you get caught between, my, I've got to cover my costs and have the same profit that I had before. Between that and I've got to cover my costs and maybe a little more profit than I had before. And then you get caught between two stores and start signing less deals. Simon, um, is there anything that you've, um, uh, well, do we want to say anything about this? I mean, I, I, I think it is worrying that the that that wind prices are going up. I mean, at the same time, there's a, one of our shorts this week talks about the right downs uh, and the... Um, that, that's the, something I should talk about is the wind price, because I've been banging on endlessly about polysilicon. Everyone must be sick to death of seeing the word um, now, all of our readers. I should, we should write about the wind turbine increase, because that's gone up by really what? a comparable amount to the module price increase of solar. But, but what's causing it? I think steel prices, it, shipping prices, steel prices, prices. Yeah. Really, okay, still prices are definitely going to stay up and, and, and they're going to demand a green premium. So that, that one's probably here to stay. Transport has been up and is coming down again. Hmm. So maybe that's not here to stay. So maybe, you know, actually it would be a good investigation, Bogdan. Do you want, you know, you want to put that on your list in the next two weeks to look at what's driving wind prices up? Yeah, I mean, and, and, so, and, and then be clear, you know, is this... In, there's this part of it, what percentage of, of it is this, and will this stay, will this disappear in a couple of years, or will it, will it, all, uh, will it all settle down, or will some of it stay in the price? That'd be worth a little investigation, I think. Um, well, it might even be worth a uh, research paper. Um, I'm sure if any of our customers out there listening to this um, say, yeah, yeah, we, we want a research paper, please tell us why all these costs are uh, where they are, and please tell us when they're going to go away, if they're going to go away. That, I think, I'm sure that's what people are asking for. So um, we should we should try and do that, even if it's just a long article for the issue or, or, or a research paper or both. Um, Simon, um, anything caught your eye uh, this week that's or baffled you or, or impressed you? Well, yes. In um, so it, there's a lot of technical um, components material. Uh, talk in this week's edition and one of them I, I've never heard of before and it's it's a, a university research into uh, a photovoltaic semiconductor material called kesterite and uh, uh, so w what exactly is kesterite and why is it important? Well to be honest I'm not I'm not particularly familiar with kesterite but uh, I did see that and I thought I should mention it uh, you know because it's not it's not looking like it, it, it they've reached 13 percent efficiency and really, the interest. So it, it's behind perovskite. It's got a fraction of the interest that perovskite has. Perovskite's going to come next, and right now I we're see. also looking at the more mundane heterodoxy before that. So you know, I, 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 maybe I could look into kesterite a bit more. I've seen it mentioned once. It, it, it's copper. It's copper. Um, um, it's, it, uh, Zinc, iron, tin, and salt. But what 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 I can say. Uh, about this is that the interesting part is that the previous set record was set all the way back in 2013 
And now we have a paper finally progressing that sort of headline efficiency number. And perhaps that isn't coincidence. I think that probably shows um, that there may be, have been some cross-semiconductor uh, cross, uh, benefits from all the research going into perovskites and other uh, technologies uh, and the general growth of solar uh, research as a whole. So maybe this shows more progress. I mean, right next to that, that came after a little bit of progress from um, the Swiss researchers uh, of EMPA, uh, and they're working with a manufacturer of flimps on, on SIG cells, which are not, uh, you know, they've been around for a while, but they've kind of fallen to a very small proportion of the to total marketplace. So, uh, and of course, every every new um, semiconductor that you add, if it's thin film, you can add it to a tandem, um, and it might have an, an application in anything from satellites to devices to building integrated. Um, actually, there's a Cattle, the um, the big uh, the, the the big battery manufacturer, that's got a uh, that's filed a perovskite patent. I think we should mention that in, in passing. But anyway, oh yeah, but I mean, I think what we're seeing here is that people are getting better at thin film technology. There are more more there's more equipment around to build them. Um, they're becoming more predictable. So, and that's because of perovskite, and then therefore that could be applied to other materials. And therefore, the research is worth doing. So this is going to be in uh, R&D departments and universities for some time to come. This and other things like it. But when when it will it, when they emerge, it's like all these things in battery. I mean, I was talking to a battery supplier the other day, and they're saying, "Oh, you know, our, our, our bill of materials cost the actual materials we need to build our battery is one third the price of or one quarter to one third the price of of uh, lithium." Well, that's all very well. But if lithium ions had a 35-year run at this, and everyone knows what they're doing with it. So to, to bring down your price to under the price of a battery, you've got to make a lot of them. And to make a lot of them, you've got to have a good reason to make a lot of them. And it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, being lost in the countryside, and you ask the local yokel um, the way, and he says, I wouldn't start from here. Um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't start from a new substance right now, but but universities should expand human knowledge. So that's what they're doing. Well, what do you think of that uh, that little molten salt energy storage thing I said uh, was happening in Zhejiang province? I almost didn't put it in. You didn't? It's not it's that boring, <laughs> is it? Well, no, no it's just... It's just uh, OK, I mean, so the thing is... Um, Getting away from molten salt and just thinking um, uh, thermal storage. Yes, we need to we need to attack thermal storage. Yeah, if we claim to do all things renewables, the world the energy transition is not going to happen without storing heat, and and there needs to be better ways to store heat, and there needs to be a lot more of it. And and as I've just been saying about previous technologies, if we make a lot more of it, we can probably do it a lot cheaper. So there needs to be a, a surge of activity in that market. I'm not sure it's going to be around modern salt. I think that's that's old technology. I think that you know you've seen other things used in CSP as carrier uh, substances, and I think we need to look at, at, at new materials. But even so, modern salt at scale might well end up cheap enough to be a, a thermal storage material. It, it just surprised um, me because, of course, I've written about it in the context of CSP. But this isn't CSP. It's just going to be excess renewables, uh, electricity turned into the heat and then used for the local chemistry. And you've got to look at the round-trip efficiency. If, you, if you've got excess renewables, 
Um, how excess are they? Did you build them specially for it? In which yeah. case, they're not excess. If you're just and if you're just in a scheme in, in a grid which says, "I'm sorry, we only allow you to uh, give 30% of your power to the grid because you're unreliable." So is it just the 70% stub that usually you give away for nothing? I mean, it depends how you, because if they change the rules of the grid, that 70% that will go elsewhere. But, but um, certainly um, turning electricity as is into heat on the off chance that someone will need it to be turned back into electricity again is poor round trip efficiency. Mm. Um, on the off chance that someone's going to use it as district heat, and that's a kind of common denominator, i.e. I can always sell this to the nearby towns because they have a district heat system. That's fine. That's brilliant. Not enough towns have district heat systems. Have you ever been, has everyone been in a, a town heated by a district heat system? No. No. Well, have you ever been to Copenhagen? Can't you go to that. Copenhagen and you go in one of the shops or you go in, in the underground and everything's toasty warm. It's all district heat. It's wonderful. Um, so, but but it does require the laying of lots and lots of lots of pipes, um, and that's what happens in northern China in the same way, and all over Russia. Well, I grew up in a, a city with uh, central district heating, and uh, it's not nice when it's uh, it's late November and they haven't turned it on. Haven't turned it on yet because they can't. <laughs> Yeah, well, there is that. That's certainly a complaint in in northern Russia and in, and in China. Yeah, definitely. Um, that they pick a date and they stick to that date no matter what because they've provisioned the fuel. Yeah, and that is that's that is difficult. But if that's all coming from industrial processes, which are built around uh, perhaps use use of hydrogen, then it's a way of saving even more of the energy that you're trapped in hydrogen. So, uh, yeah, this will come to pass. I don't think anyone's got a great theory about. Um, thermal um, thermal storage and, and use of, of excess thermal. The thing is, if you're if you're building if you're in this part of China, there's loads of factories. They are going to use electricity um, to turn it into heat. So you don't actually need to store that electricity in batteries. You really can store it as heat. I think in in some cases to yeah, some, yeah, yeah. some extent. Yeah. So I think this could be quite. Effective. I mean, probably for now, it's just some local municipality throwing money at it. But I think this could be commercial. Well, if, if the efficiencies are there, and if the prices are there, molten salt is cheap. So there really is no reason not to export the techniques around the world. But the techniques need a concentration of, of industry. And, and the other point is, this is long duration. How many sources of long duration storage are there? Not many. Well, no, thermal, thermal loses energy more rapidly than electricity. Um, if it's stored as heat, um, you're losing, I don't know, you know uh, 2 or 3% a week. And, and if it's stored as hydrogen, you're not. Um, so, so, I mean, if it's stored as battery, um, you're not. It, it, they're much smaller amounts. So I, I think long duration, therefore, is a, is a poor thing. You store thermal energy to be used in the next week or so. It's not. It's not. I, I don't know of a way of storing it efficiently over a long period of time, cheaply that will be seasonal. Um, so I, th I think I think you're only talking about. Um, I've made this energy today. I'm going to use it tomorrow or the day after. Uh, that's that's my understanding of how most um, most district heat systems 
work alongside the industrial heat. Um, tell me if anyone wants to research it, tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, I may have that wrong. Um, so I don't really see this as long duration. Long duration is, is, um, is definitely um, people are pushing things like um, flow batteries because if you don't let the two fluids mix, um, they stay in the exact same state. There's almost no leakage of, of charge. So you can wait 10 weeks, 20 weeks, and then suddenly turn it on. Um, so, uh, you know, the flow guys believe that they're going to come into their own in long duration because of that. Um, even even uh, lithium-ion batteries do leak over a 10, 20-week period quite a lot. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I can't see heat being the solution for long duration. Anybody out there who knows better, by all means, write in. Um, we're always willing to listen and we always want to learn. Um, okay, so all of this and more is on uh, this week's issue. Um, you go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. Um, you click on energy and you'll immediately come into weekly analysis, which is a free weekly publication. Um, if you need more details to plan your business, Forecast and data gives you, a, which is a, another tab, gives you a list of all the products that are sold for a $4,600 annual subscription um, in, uh, at Rethink Energy. If you've got any questions about any of those, uh, get in touch with Simon at rethinkresearch.biz and ask him um, any questions you have and, and ask him what kind of information you need. Um, and with that, I think we finished this week's uh, dip into uh, uh, the energy marketplace. We'll be back next week with another podcast. Thank you.